Let's pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to be together, even if it is just virtually. We thank you, God, that um, even in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this crisis, um, you have given us the opportunity to, to hit pause and to tune in, to worship you, and to hopefully hear a word from you. And so that's what we're asking for in this moment, God. We pray that as we turn to your word, that you would speak to us, that you would reveal the truth of who you are, that you would help us to remember that you're in control, that you are the one who is worthy of our praise, and that despite what we're going through, despite what the horizon looks like it is bringing, we can trust that you are working for our good and for your glory. I pray that you would help us to do that in this moment, God. Uh, I think of those in our body and outside of it who are in need. I pray that you would provide for those needs. I pray, God, that you would um, be revealing yourself in the midst of this pandemic so that many people who don't know you will come to know who you are and what you've done for them and will trust you with their lives. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Really great. Really, really great to be back with you all today. Uh, this is the second week in the new series that we started last week uh, in the book of Colossians. And the title of that series is This Changes Everything, because as we're going to as we're going to see as we work through this book and it just holds up who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that Jesus changes everything about our lives. As we're living in a in a in a moment of history where it feels like everything has changed, I hope in this time together that we're going to see that there is a bigger, greater more important change that can happen in our lives and it is the one when Jesus steps in and we accept him for who he is and for what he has done. So last week we looked at the first few verses of Colossians chapter 1. Today we're just going to move right on to the next few verses. So today we're in Colossians chapter 1 starting in verse 15. Colossians 1 15 and we're going to go through verse 23. I'll give you three seconds to get that. All right, let's go. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He is, talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I don't know if all of you have noticed this, but in the last few weeks, there has been an increased discussion about goats. Now, I'm not talking about the smelly, hairy farm animals that eat flowers 
uh, and make funny noises. I'm actually talking about human goats. And actually, that's a compliment if you know what I'm talking about. See, GOAT is an acronym. G-O-A-T stands for greatest of all time. The GOAT. The reason there has been an, a heightened discussion around this idea of the GOAT is that ESPN, I think two weeks ago now, moved up the release of what is probably the most highly anticipated documentary it's ever produced. And that documentary is called The Last Dance. It is a 10-part series that gives a behind-the-scenes look at Michael Jordan's last year and last championship with the Chicago Bulls in 1998. We don't have ESPN in my house, and it is killing me. I cannot wait to watch it. But the reason there has been a heightened discussion about this idea of the GOAT, the greatest of all time, is that because most people, most rational people, consider Michael Jordan to be the greatest basketball player of all time. But this, the release of this documentary, I've started to see discussions uh, online and in the media of who actually is the GOAT. And I, I see this crazy thing that perhaps LeBron should be considered the greatest of all time. Now, LeBron James is a basketball player from Cleveland. I'm from Cleveland. I, I love LeBron. I'm a big fan. My oldest son used to have a t-shirt that said, just a kid from Akron, which is what LeBron was. Like, I'm a LeBron fan, but there is no debate. There is no discussion. There is no question who is the GOAT when it comes to basketball. It's Michael Jordan. It's not LeBron James. And in fact, actually a much, a much more appropriate discussion and a much more interesting discussion for us to have about the GOAT, the greatest of all time, would be to ask whether Michael Jordan or Joe Exotic is the greatest of all time. That's a real discussion. Michael and LeBron, forget about it. We know who it is. It's Michael. Why? Why all this discussion about greatness and, and the greatest of all time? Because as humans, we love greatness. We, we desire greatness. We are drawn to greatness. Uh, I would actually say we long for greatness. And it's especially in this place where we live in America, it's just kind of it's kind of woven into our DNA. I mean, the, the whole idea of the American dream is this kind of marketing promise, if you will, that if you come to America, you can find your greatness. I mean, the, the whole idea of uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is the idea that each person is entitled to try and be great on their own. And there's just something in our DNA that is drawn to greatness. And if America, how much more so here in the Bay Area where we live? The Silicon Valley is like a, like a living monument to what the world would call great. I mean, just like if you're talking about basketball and you say Michael, most people know who you're talking about. Here in Silicon Valley, we just have a whole host of people. You only have to use one name and you know who you're talking about because they're so associated with this idea of greatness. I mean, Jobs. I'm not talking about work. I'm talking about the person named Jobs. You know who I'm talking about. Cook. Uh, Sandberg. Zuckerberg, or as his friends call him, Zuck. I don't know if that's true, but it, it probably it would be cool if they did. Uh, Ellison, Packard, right? We know who these people are because they're just they're associated with greatness in our mind, and we love greatness. And in fact, I would actually take it one step for, further, and I would say we don't just long for greatness, we don't just love greatness, we actually worship greatness. I mean, think about kind of how I started this message. Think about athletes. It is. It is a form of worship, the way that we follow and support athletes, the way that we buy their shoes. And I mean, that hits home for me because I, I love Michael Jordan's shoes. Um, the way we mourn for them when they die, like we've lost 
a family member. We, we worship greatness. And it's not just in sports. Um, every year, thousands of people sacrifice enormous sums of money and enormous amounts of time to go to the greatest mountain of all time, which is Everest. And often some of them will actually end up sacrificing their entire life in order to go worship at the goat of mountains. Um, we do it in our own lives. We can spend a day in Yosemite, which to my mind is one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth. And at the end of that day, uh, we will post to our social media account a picture of a crummy piece of pepperoni pizza because it tasted so good. And we will say something about, this is the greatest pizza of all time. Yeah, we, we don't just long for, for greatness. We don't just desire greatness. We actually worship it. And, and here's, here's what I'm gonna say about that. We're supposed to. I don't think it's a problem. I actually think we are designed to worship greatness. We were made to worship greatness. The problem is not that we want to worship greatness. The problem is that we worship things that are not really great. We worship lesser things. There is something great that is worthy of our worship that we were made to worship, but we settle for lesser things. That's what we're gonna see Paul is coming against in our text. Just for a little bit of context before we turn to the verses that we're going to look at today. Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. So we talked about last week, that's a, a town in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. He's actually never been to that church. He's just heard about it. And he's writing this letter to encourage them in their faith and teach them about this God that they are now putting their hope and trust in. See, the Colossians 2,000 years ago were not any less susceptible than we are today to wanting to worship greatness. And I think Paul recognizes that. And I think Paul is writing, and in these verses that we're going to read today, he's essentially saying, hey, I understand that you're going to be tempted to worship other things, that there's something inside of us that wants to, wants to hold up high something that is great and to actually more than just hold it up high, to actually worship it. And he's like, I just want to remind you about who Jesus Christ is because, because he's the one who's actually worthy of your worship. And what he does in these verses is he gives us a divine resume for who Jesus is and what he has done and why he is the one that is worthy of our worship. So as we turn to our text, that's what I want, to us, that's what I want us to have in our minds framing how we read these verses. It is, it, is, it is Jesus' divine resume. And Paul tells us two things about him in these nine verses that we're going to look at. He tells us who Jesus is and he tells us what he has done. So we'll turn back to the text in the first part we're gonna see Paul talking about who Jesus is. And what he tells us in verses 15 through about verse 20 is that Jesus, no arguing about it, Jesus is the GOAT. Jesus is the greatest of all time. Now, I need to be really careful here because I don't wanna confuse people. Um, there are parts of the New Testament, parts of the Gospels, uh, where Jesus himself actually talks about sheep and goats. And when he does it, Matthew 5 is one area where he does that. He is actually talking about the farm animals. He is talking about real sheep and real goats. And the upshot of that parable is you don't want to be a goat because in the end times, God the Father is going to separate the sheep from the goats and the sheep get to go to heaven. So I want to be clear. That's not the kind of goat that I'm calling Jesus in this, in this sermon. I'm calling Jesus the goat, just like we would call Michael Jordan the goat. And I know that's a crass comparison and Jesus far, far surpasses Michael Jordan, but I'm saying that Jesus is the GOAT. Jesus is the greatest of all time. The challenge this morning 
is that this is one of the greatest Christological texts in the entire Bible. It is one of the most beautiful passages of scripture talking about who Jesus is in the entire Bible. And we, I, we could literally preach a sermon for every verse I'm about to read. Time and sanity do not allow us to do that. And so we're gonna try and do the impossible in the next few minutes, and that is summarize the description that Paul gives us of Jesus in these few verses. There are six things that I want us to draw out in these verses as we work through the idea that Jesus is the greatest of all time. There's actually more things that Paul says about Jesus in this text, but there are six things that he says about Jesus that I wanna make sure we don't miss. The first is this, he is the firstborn of all creation. That's in verse 15. Now look, you'll notice that I've skipped over the first clause of that verse. He is the image of the invisible God. That's because that's number six, and we'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But the first thing that I want us to see in this passage that Paul is postulating about Jesus is that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, what does that even mean? What it does not mean is that Jesus was born. I know that can be confusing. Christian doctrine, Christian theology tells us that God, Father, Holy Spirit have existed since before time began. They were not created. They were not born. This does not mean that Jesus was born. Firstborn in its biblical sense can carry two meanings. The first is uh, a temporal meaning, an idea of time. So it can literally mean what we would take it to mean, which is the oldest, the firstborn. But it also can mean rank. It also can mean stature. And so where we see that is actually back in the Psalms. In Psalm 89, 27, God is talking about King David, but very clearly is also talking about the king that will come from David's line. And he says this, Psalm 89, 27, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so Paul is saying here in this verse 15, he's saying, Jesus is number one. His rank is above everyone else. If there was an org chart for creation, Jesus sits at the top. He is the highest. He is the best. He has the prime position. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. So second thing we're going to see, moving on to verse 16, Paul says, for by him, all things were created. Jesus is not only the top. He's not only number one. Jesus is the author of creation. Jesus, everything that we see, everything that's around us, you and me, everything in the world, Jesus is the one who made that happen. He's above all. He's the one who created all. Continuing through verse 16, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And now number three, and for him. He's the owner. He's number one. He's the creator. Everything that he created was for himself. He owns it all. It's all his. It's all for him. The first, uh, the first chapter of the Gospel of John says that when Jesus came to earth, he came to his own stuff. It's all his. He owns it all. He's on top. He created it. He owns it. And then in verse 17, we're going to see that he is the sustainer. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. The reason that the earth orbits around the sun and that the stars hang in the sky and the reason that gravity works is because Jesus Christ is actively sustaining. He is actively holding together everything that we see around us. Number five, we're going to skip ahead to verse 20. He is the reconciler and the peacemaker. Those go together. Number 5a and 5b. And through him, verse 20, 
and through him, to, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now that presupposes sin, which we've talked about in weeks past, and it presupposes that there's a chasm between God and man. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is the one who has reconciled man to God. He is the one who has made peace, as we're going to see in the next part of this passage, that we who are enemies of God, Jesus has made at peace with God. He's number one. He's prime. He's above all. He is the, uh, he's the creator. He is the owner. He is the sustainer. He is the reconciler and the peacemaker. And the last thing that we're going to see draw out of these first six verses is that Jesus is God. If we can circle back to verse 15, the part that I skipped over, Paul starts this beautiful passage off and he says, he is the image of of the invisible God. That Greek word for image is ikon. It is the word that we get icon from in our language. But Paul is not saying that Jesus is a just a picture of who God is. He is saying he is actually God. He is the same stuff that God is. And he just goes ahead and reiterates that in verse 19, a few verses later, when he tells us that for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's saying, if you want to know God, look at Jesus. Now, I think that's really important for the context that Paul is writing this letter into. This church in Colossae would have been made up of two types of people. It would have been made up of Jewish people and Gentile people. And I think Paul is speaking into both of those contexts in these six verses, magnifying who Jesus is. He's saying to those people in Colossae who, who are Jewish, he's saying, if you, if you have grown up Jewish and, and you have grown up worshiping something that you thought was great, which is the God of your scriptures, which is the God of our, which is our Old Testament today. But if you've grown up and if you spent your life worshiping the God of your scriptures, the God who you believe created everything, the God who you believe sustains everything, the God who, who saved your ancestors out of slavery, bought them out of the slave market of Egypt, who sustained them through for 40 years in the wilderness and brought them into the promised land and, and drove out nations in front of them. And the God who upheld his covenant, though your ancestors continued to break their side of the covenant. If, if you spent your life worshiping that God, Jesus does not replace that God. Jesus makes that God known. He's saying Jesus is God. And now the invisible God that you have never seen, you can see and you can see in the person of Jesus. And to the other group in Colossae, the group of people who were Gentiles, I think Paul is saying, for you who are Gentiles, for you who, who have grown up worshiping a pantheon of gods, you've grown up worshiping a God for every season of the year and every planet in the sky, he is saying Jesus is not just another God to add to your menagerie of gods. He is saying Jesus is the one true God. He is the one who is above all. Anything else that you thought you worshiped before was simply created by him. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. I think that's what Paul is saying in these verses that we've just looked at. Now, since my family and I have come to the Bay Area, one of our most favorite things to do is to go down to Monterey to the aquarium. We, we all love it. There's something for everybody. Uh, do you know what that aquarium does? or what any aquarium does for that matter. An aquarium, that aquarium down in Monterey, it takes something that is so vast and so incomprehensible and really something that would, that it, that would be virtually impossible 
for an individual human to wrap their mind around, something that is invisible, <clears throat> the ocean, and it makes it visible. If you want to know the ocean, look at an aquarium. If you want to know how the ocean works, what it looks like, what's in it, how they interact, go look at an aquarium. And forgive the crassness of this metaphor, but Jesus is God's aquarium. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. God is this vast, incomprehensible, invisible thing, and yet he is known in Jesus. If you want to know the ocean, look at an aquarium. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. And actually, if we want to get really theological, we could take this one step further. That uh, aquarium down in Monterey, it is not distinct from the bay that is outside. There are giant pumps that all day and all night are pumping water from Monterey Bay into the aquarium and then pumping it back out. So the stuff that is out there in the ocean is the same stuff that you see in the aquarium. And that stuff that you see in the aquarium is the same stuff that you see out in the ocean. And a good, uh, good theology of the Trinity of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit is not that they are three different gods, it's that they are one God in three persons. And theologians use a term called perichoresis, which just means that they are all made of the same stuff. And they exist in this beautiful divine existence of love where this stuff is the passing between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. If you want to know the ocean, look at an aquarium. And if you want to know God, look at Jesus. Now, I don't think it would be too aggressive. I don't think this is overly aggressive of me when I talk about how best we apply this passage to our life. I mean, there's a lot of ways that we can go with it, but I think there's really only one option when we look at what Paul has just described in these verses and how we are to respond to it. And that is that we are to fall on our faces in worship at who Jesus Christ is. And as we're going to see in a minute, what he has done. There is, um, we are inherently designed to worship greatness. And, and Paul is telling us in this passage, Jesus is the greatness that you were designed to worship. May we just fall on our knees in worship at the one who is above all, the one who is the firstborn of all creation, who is the image of the invisible God and is in preeminent in all things. This world is constantly throwing things at us, lesser greatnesses that it wants us to worship. And especially in a place like the Bay Area, we are bombarded by things like our job and our portfolio and our house and our car and our leisure and our vacations and our stuff and our computers and our phones and our control and our routines, our own pursuit of our own greatness. And it's, it, it, it all pales. It all fades in comparison to the greatness of Jesus Christ. He is the one that we were designed to worship. All of those other things cannot deliver what he can. Jesus is the GOAT. He is the greatest of all time, and he is the one who is worthy of our worship. Now, I have half a mind just to shut it down right there, but there are a few more verses in this passage, and, uh, and we're going to look at those too. So the second thing that we're going to see after Paul has made the argument, hey, here's Jesus' resume, and based on that resume, I just, you, can, you can rest assured he is the one that you were made to worship. He is the greatest of all time. Then he makes a, he makes a pivot. 
And in verse 21, he actually starts talking about the Colossians, who he is writing the letter to. And what he says in the second part of this passage that we're looking at is that not only is Jesus the greatest of all time, but Jesus is the one who makes us right with God. Jesus makes us right with God. And it's just, it's kind of a harsh transition in verse 21 because he's just, he's, he's, he's speaking these amazing terms of who Jesus is. And then we get to verse 21 and this is what he tells us or what he tells them. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. It's like, wow, that shifted really quickly. But it's like, you can almost hear him saying like, okay, that's who Jesus is. And now before we move on, I just want to remind you what your life was like, who you were before you came to faith, before you knew Jesus, before he, tra- before he transformed your life. And, and the picture that he paints is pretty harsh, is it not? You, who once were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. Now, I want us to just hang out here for one minute because um, this is a really important uh, aspect of the Christian faith that a lot of people are not happy with, a lot of people don't like, and even in churches, uh, you're hearing less and less talked about this. Uh, the way that God, the way that God through Paul in this instance, very explicitly, but it's, it's, you find it throughout scripture. The way that God describes our life before we know him, before we come into contact with Jesus, and before we, we give our faith and trust and hope to Jesus, he does not describe that as just kind of uh, neutral or passive. He, he doesn't, it's not like we're innocent bystanders. Uh, God is not like, yep, there's a, just this huge cosmic battle between good and evil raging on and humans just happen to get caught on the wrong side of that battle. It, we're not, hu- humans are not prisoners of war that need to be rescued by God. What Paul is saying in this, this, this verse and, and in other places in the Bible, what is made really clear is that we are active insurgents. We are enemies to God. We are active rebels and not in the good Star Wars sense of rebels. We are, we, are, uh, we are at war against God and his kingdom. And yet, I, I, I love the way, excuse me, I love the way C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says it. He says this, he says, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. And so what the message is, is that you were an enemy of God. And then what does Paul say? Verse 22, he said, Jesus, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He's reconciled you in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What is he saying? He's saying that Jesus Christ entered enemy territory. And though he had all power in him to just totally obliterate the rebellion, he didn't. He took the consequences of the rebellion onto himself so that his enemies could become not just his friends, not just his brothers and his sisters, but literally sons and daughters of God. What Paul is saying is that when you met Jesus, remember the title of the series, it changed everything. Jesus took you from hostile, alienated enemies to holy and blameless before God. And the difference is what happened? How did that happen? What is the gap in between? It is his death on the cross. Jesus is not only the greatest of all time, but Jesus is the one who makes us right with God. I know some of you would be familiar with this story. It is one of, in my mind, uh, 
one of the most beautiful pictures of mercy and one of the most beautiful pictures of an enemy being reconciled that I know. Uh, it, it's, it's, it comes to us from Victor Hugo, from his, uh, his very famous story, Les Mis, as, uh, as if some of you may remember, uh, one of the main characters in that story is a, is a poor peasant uh, named Jean Valjean. He steals a loaf of bread to feed his sister's child and spends 20, 19 years in prison for that crime. And after he gets out, he's uh, helpless and hopeless and has been totally broken as a person. He has no place to, to stay. He has nothing to eat. And the bishop of the local church uh, sees him and invites him in to spend the night on the church property. And they warm him by the fire. He's starved and they feed him good food. They give him a bed to sleep in. They love him. And in the middle of the night, he gets up and he fills a sack with all of the valuable silverware of the church and steals it. He leaves. The next day, the three policemen bring Jean Valjean back to the church and they throw him down in front of the bishop. And they say, we found this guy. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. We found this guy and he's got all the silverware from the church and he's telling us that you gave it to him. And in that moment, that bishop has every ability to absolutely crush Jean Valjean. And if you know the story, you remember what he says. And again, paraphrasing, he essentially says, I'm very upset. You forgot the candles. The candelabras are the most valuable pieces in the set. You forgot to take them. Here, take the candles with you. Of course I gave this to him. Please release him. And the policemen release him and set him free. That is just such a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us. And it is such a beautiful picture of what Paul is talking about here in this passage. You once were enemies. But because of Jesus Christ, because his love for you, because his grace for you, because of his forgiveness, you are now reconciled to God. That priest vouched for Jean Valjean. He essentially said he's blameless. He's without reproach. Let him go. And Jesus does the same thing for us to God the Father, despite our condition as enemies of God, uh, doing evil deeds, alienated, hostile in mind. Jesus says, I vouch for them. When we come to him, when we come to him in faith, when we give him our hope and our trust, Jesus says, they're blameless. They're, they're without reproach. And God says, I take your word for it. And, and it, that changes everything. So Jesus is not only the greatest of all time, but the greatest of all time has entered into our story to make us right with God, to do something that we could never do for ourselves. How, how possibly can we respond to that? Well, like I said earlier, to worship. But, but the other thing that that means for us, and I, I just think this is beautiful and it's a great reminder in this season where we feel like we are so um, out of control, how we can't control things that are happening. Because of what Jesus has done for us, because of that change, that transformation that has happened in our lives, the pressure is off. It's not up to us. We don't, we don't have to become great. We don't have to find someone else that we can live our lives vicariously through because we think they are great. We, in fact, the, the message of this book is we can never be great. We can never be good enough. We can never succeed enough. We can never do enough to actually make God want us or to love us. We can't do it, but the good news is that Jesus has done it for us. There is someone who is great. There is someone who is a winner, and it is Jesus. And the message of the gospel is that we can't do it ourselves, but that's okay because the pressure is off 
because Jesus will literally transfer his greatness to us. We get his righteousness when we come to him. He is the greatest of all time. And when we submit our lives to him, we receive that greatness onto ourselves, something that we could never do for ourselves. Jesus is the greatest of all time, and he has made us right with God. As we uh, get ready to wrap this up, uh, some of you will remember, I think I've actually, I talked about this in a sermon earlier this year. Um, remember when Kobe Bryant died? And do you remember what people did outside of the Staples Center uh, where he played basketball? One, obviously considered one of the greatest of all time. He's in, he would be in any discussion of who's the GOAT when it comes to basketball. But do you remember what people did? And, and it's not unique to Kobe. They do this whenever, people do this whenever someone um, famous or considered great dies. They, they set up memorials, right? They bring uh, memorabilia and, and pictures and flowers and they light candles and we call them memorials. But do you know what I really think they are? I really think they're altars. They're little altars of worship to greatness. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying anything is wrong with Kobe Bryant at all. That was just a, a, a supremely tragic situation. And I could have picked any one of a number of people who have died recently. And, and, and people do this. And why is, it, why is it that people set up these memorials, these altars to, to great people who have died? I think it's this. I think it's because we are, we are hardwired to worship greatness. And in the absence of Jesus, we will find something great to worship. But, but the message of Colossians and the message of the Bible is that Jesus is actually the one that we were hardwired to worship. He is the GOAT. There is no debate. He is the greatest of all time. And not only that, but he is the one who has made us right with God. That is an amazing, amazing truth. I want to close with another passage that Paul wrote. It's not in the letter to the Colossians. It's in his letter to the Philippians. And in my Bible, it's literally just one page before. But speaking of Jesus and all of the things that we have just discussed together this morning, this is what Paul says about Jesus Christ. And he just says it so much better than anything I could say. I just want to read it. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. He says about Jesus, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the greatest of all time. He is the one that we were made to worship. Oh, that we might join with all of creation in bowing our knees and confessing with our tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord. May we worship him. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that in the midst of um, what is just a really unsettling season in life, in the midst of what is for a lot of us a really difficult season of life, we can turn to your word and we can be reminded that all of the lesser things that we're drawn to, all of the lesser things that we want, that something inside us wants to worship, that can, that can actually be totally fulfilled in your son, Jesus Christ. And we praise you for that. I pray, God, that even in this moment, even as we we head out into our day after this, this service, that you will um, instill in our hearts and minds the truth that there is one who is above all, that there is one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who in all things is preeminent. 
and that he is worthy of our worship, but not only worthy of our worship, that he knows us, that he loves us, and that he's come to be with us and to restore our relationship with you. Thank you for that. Thank you for the truth of it. Thank you for the way that that changes everything. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Uh, as we finish up, I just want to make, uh, make you aware of something that we've been doing for the past two weeks. And that is uh, right now, in this moment, some members of our staff and some members of our prayer team are on a Zoom conference call waiting for anyone that would like to be prayed for. There's a link in the description for this video, if you are watching it live, that will take you right into that room. We can pair you off with a prayer counselor into a breakout Zoom room, and you can be prayed for. If you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, if you just have something in your life that you would like to be prayed for, would love, it would make their week for you to join them today and be prayed for. Again, that's a Zoom call right now as we finish this service. The link is in the description uh, for this service. Now please receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forevermore. Amen. You are loved, you are prayed for, and you are sent.